0: Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, and his dog, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up, Tim, on this lovely Tuesday morning? How are you?
1: How's it going, Brian? I've got a dog who's really hyped up right now, but
0: I think he'll very down. excited to talk about very excited to talk about Belarus to talk about JCPOA 2.0. He's got a lot of thoughts, so he's he's having a
1: hard time con- containing himself. Containing
0: but. himself, yeah, exactly. Maybe we'll, we'll put him uh, back to sleep when we start talking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, welcome everybody to the latest episode of Embargo. Thank you for joining once again. Uh, we are recording this on Tuesday, May 25th. This is going up just before Memorial Day weekend in the U.S., so for anybody who's listening to this um, either before or just after Memorial Day weekend, we hope you had a uh, have or had a good long weekend. Um, welcome back. Uh, as always, um, thank you for the feedback and comments on the most recent episode. We appreciate it. Uh, we have a good episode today. We have sort of a pretty compact episode, but about half a dozen topics we're going to hit, um, and run through a few things that are on the cusp, but not quite, uh, fully fleshed out yet. So we're going to touch on a few of those and uh, a couple of recent developments that have come up in, in the, in the prior, and uh, just in the past couple of days, which is a good thing. We, we waited till Tuesday to record this. So, um, we have a lot to get through and, and, um, an interesting show for today so uh just before we get started of course we are not here giving legal advice we're uh not discussing any confidential information as always uh any opinions or thoughts that you hear on the program are solely mine and tim's if you don't like them blame us Um, and uh, of course if you are a fan of the pod please subscribe please leave us a rating Hopefully a five-star rating. You can find us anywhere you get your content, um, and uh, I think that's it. So let me let me run through the uh, roadmap really quickly here, uh, and and then uh, throw it to Tim before we get started. So we're gonna um, run through four main topics today. Um, number one, a few of these are stalwart topics that we cover often, and then uh we have a we have a couple of uh a couple of new ones that we haven't hit on in a while so number one uh is the the sanctions that were uh rolled out and announced last week uh, targeting Nord stream two uh and we're going to talk about what that did and more to the point what that did not do and what that signals uh we're going to check in on jcpoa 2.0 as we inch ever closer to perhaps having an agreement uh, for the us and iran to come back into compliance with the deal we're gonna check in once again on the ccmc list and xiaomi uh about to get off the ccmc list and then uh, yet another lawsuit that has been brought to to challenge uh a recent listing from january and then the f- the fourth and final topic in the main portion of the show is going to be a report that just came out last week on the uh hong kong autonomy act and we're going to check in on that and just a few quick thoughts on that we haven't touched on hong kong in a while so we wanted to we wanted to hit on that and then in the lightning round just two topics number one um, we're going to look at ransomware Uh, it's something we've talked about before in connection with the ofac guidance and then with the colonial pipeline attack uh recently in the news uh, i think we wanted to just reflect on that uh briefly and then finally uh the sort of Fairly astonishing events that happened in Belarus over the weekend, with the Ryanair flight being diverted, some say hijacked, and a dissident journalist being pulled off, and what that may mean, both uh, from a sanctions perspective and perhaps more broadly going forward uh, in the coming weeks and months with respect to Belarus and the regime there. So I think that's our show for today, Tim. Any any quick thoughts before we jump in, or? No, a lot of
1: the, a lot of the headlines are seeping their way into our show. At least the foreign policy headlines, and I think that that is kind of where sanctions policy is. If it, if it happens, there'll be sanctions. Um, yeah, as, in, as, at as least internationally.
0: Yeah, as we as we have noted time and time and again, uh, but I think that's actually a good segue to topic number one, which is uh, something we've talked about a lot over the last year plus is Nord Stream 2 and the U.S. response to Nord Stream 2 and the sanctions that are at least have been on the books with respect to Nord Stream 2 uh, for quite some time. Uh, So last week uh, there was a report to Congress uh, pursuant to the uh, Protecting Europe's Energy Supply Act, PISA, uh, as we have been expecting, and that report was issued the middle of last week. Uh, And there were several Individuals, entities, and vessels that were identified in that report that uh, were su- that were identified as being subject to sanctions pursuant to PISA. Um, however, I think the most interesting piece here, and what we want to spend most of our t- time talking about, is what is not happening at the moment with respect to uh, that report and and the sanctions that can be levied with respect to Nord Stream 2 generally on the US side. So number one, there's sort of two big aspects to this for people who have not been following. So number one, the report was issued by the state department middle of last week. And at the same time, the state department took great pains to make clear in its public statements accompanying that the report that, um, Nord Stream 2 AG, the company in charge of the project and its CEO, who's a German national, as well as its senior uh, executives, there were waivers being applied, national security waivers that were being applied with respect to the sanctions that were could be or sh- should have been imposed with respect to them underneath under PISA. So that's number one. There was a waiver, a pretty significant waiver with respect to the company and the senior executives, number one. Two days later, OFAC announced the additions of uh several entities and vessels that were implicated by that report to congress on the non-sdn menu-based sanctions list uh they were essentially all subject to blocking sanctions with a with a tiny carve-out uh relating to importation of goods that's provided for under the statute but at the same time that those sanctions were announced there was a general license that was issued with respect to uh marine rescue service which is a russian entity that's the owner of most of the vessels, or at least it's is the primary or at least secondary owner through its subsidiaries of most of the vessels that were implicated here. And there's a general license which essentially broadly permits US person activities with MRS as it is known, um, as long as it isn't they are not activities directly related to Nord Stream two project or Turk stream, or that have to do with the vessels that are specifically listed on the non-SDN menu-based sanctions list. So at the end of the day, what we have is uh, some sanctions that were announced and that were uh, imposed. However, when you take a step back and look at all of this, it doesn't necessarily amount to much. And I would, I will, before I turn to Tim, I, I will um, pat ourselves on the back a little bit for having kind of called this when we were thinking about this in January and February after PISA was tweaked um in the most recent uh, ndaa legislation that was passed in in early january we sort of expected under a biden administration that there was not going to be the stomach or the it was going to be viewed as strategically um distasteful or just not really possible to go hard after some of these entities, because of the relationship, the U.S. relationship with Germany and other EU partners, wanting to kind of rebuild some of those bridges, um, and that is in fact exactly what has happened. is there, there have been some sanctions imposed. They're really very targeted. There has been the, obviously the waivers we are, that I already mentioned, uh, and you know, you've seen uh, statements come out from the you know German. Senior German officials pr- kind of praising this this action and and you know we're going to continue to work with the U.S. to hear their concerns. But this could have been very you know if, if this if we were still under a Trump administration, potentially we could have seen something you know very over the top here um, that would have just uh, thrown more gasoline on the fire and further uh, strained relations with. Germany and other EU partners. So um that's that's kind of where we are and you know of course the US is saying we're committed to stopping Nord Stream 2 we're, we're we continue to be against the project at the same time they're also essentially admitting defeat in some ways because there are now statements to the effect that you know the project's more than 90% complete we expect it's going to be finished later this year um and I think to this is a point we talked about before which is you know to what end would harsh sanctions have really worked here given that you know the horse is somewhat out of the barn on on the project it's just very far down the road there has been um you know quite frankly i think there were plenty of authorities in place over the last several years where there could have been actions taken perhaps more aggressively and the trump administration just simply chose not to do that in in part because i think you know as we've talked about a lot there was uh, not not a lot of appetite to go hard after Russia in the last four years, and and so I think they they largely left this alone. Obviously, people, some members of Congress and others are wringing their hands and and you know crying foul at the waivers and the general license and the sort of admission of defeat, waving the white flag. But that's that's where we are at the moment so that so that's kind of a quick summary of it all tim let me throw it to you this is i know a topic near and dear to your heart so what do we what do we make of all this and and what do you what do you, what are your takeaways from this
1: so i think the main takeaway is just what you were saying um at the end there brian and that is that you know you really have two differing philosophies of two different administrations and so on the one hand the trump administration never really seemed to have the stomach to go after russia um, on sanctions issues, and so despite the fact that Congress, um, you know, kept ramping up the sanctions on Nord Stream two uh, and Turk Stream, the the Trump administration didn't even file a report. I mean, for long after the report was due under under CATSA, the Trump administration didn't file a report on what was going on with respect to Nord Stream two for way way until after the deadline. They really didn't impose serious sanctions um, on the Nord Stream two pipeline. Um, now. It was weird because, on the one hand, as I think you just said, you had uh, you know the Trump administration also was had a very surprisingly acrimonious relationship with Germany, and so this was something that played to the Germans' benefit in some ways because the Germans wanted Nord Stream two and want Nord Stream two, and so the Trump administration's kind of very um, soft. Kind of weak attitude towards uh, towards these sanctions was was something that Germany liked. The Biden administration is kind of in the opposite position, and and we're seeing them take an opposite direction. Although it wasn't clear that that would happen necessarily. So on the one hand, the Biden administration seems uh, very determined to take a much tougher line with respect to what they view as Russian aggression. And in particular with Nord Stream 2, but in all sorts of other areas, I think they wanted to be more aggressive than the Trump administration was with respect to sanctions. However, um, the, the Biden administration took office wanting to rebuild Relationships with allies like Germany that had been really, in their view, deteriorated significantly over the course of the Trump administration, and so you see those that kind of uh, tension playing out here, where you know the Biden administration imposes these sanctions under PISA against uh, Nord Stream and the highest the highest corporate actors with respect to Nord Stream. So these are serious sanctions that, if they were imposed and and actually implemented, they could work. On the other hand. Doing that was going to greatly antagonize our ally Germany, which I think in the Biden administration's view, we couldn't afford to antagonize now because relationships were were not good. And so they decided to to walk this line where they imposed the sanctions, but then they lift them. Now, that tension is also inherent in Katza. I mean, the original authorizing authority for this. I mean, now it's PISA, but I think it, that tension is there in PISA as well because these sanctions are imposed, but to the extent... Um, possible the the executive branch is supposed to work with our foreign allies on these. And right now, our foreign allies don't want these sanctions. So they they kind of did what Congress told them to do, which was to impose the sanctions, but then listen to the allies who then told them to lift the sanctions. So they did. But it's really an odd position to be in because as a practical matter, this isn't much different than doing nothing.
0: Right. And obviously the waiver that you're referring to, I mean, that could obviously always be withdrawn or rescinded at any point. So there is kind of that still hanging over this whole, uh, this whole proceeding. But at the same time, I do think, I, I just think this speaks to, again, something we've talked about a lot, which is what is the strategic purpose of the sanctions, right? And again, aggression for the sake of aggression with no real clear end game in mind and no real, prospect of achieving success just doesn't seem to fit with the agenda of this administration and I think that's more or less where they find themselves at the moment with the additional issue as you just pointed out of burning bridges with Germany and other EU allies if we were to go hard here um, and just essentially disregard the input of our of those other countries so I, I just think that it does this is a about is crystal clear uh, a demonstration of sort of that difference of approach now there there is also though another sort of a flip side to this which is you know what are what are other allies such as ukraine poland and others who who probably you know may have wanted a harsher more aggressive action what are they going to think of this um you know they they may not be very uh heartened by 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 this uh this development but at the same time you know to your point you're trying to kind of can contain and uh you know move aggressively against russia certainly seems to be kind of a central focus of this administration i just don't know that this is the avenue that we're going to really see that play out i just think again 90 plus percent complete there's just there's just you know it's very it's sort of difficult at this point to say unless there was really truly full commitment and and the kind of the most aggressive targeted actions which again would be purely unilateral at this point I just don't know that there would be there are sort of enough arrows in the quiver to to stop to stop and impede the project so I think that's just an assessment that has been made and and then with the benefits of of sort of going along in these ways and and um building some of that goodwill with the allies i think it's i think that's kind of where we've netted out and you know we'll see what happens over the course of the coming months because if congress is sufficiently upset about this there could be more that gets uh you know thrown at the wall to see if there can be something else uh potentially imposed or that the president's hands could be tied here but but i i'm not sure i'm not sure where else they go at this point um you know before this is all over
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think, and and we'll probably talk about it in a number of the segments today, but I think this is a good example of the limits of sanctions because, you know, sanctions really since Afghanistan and Iraq, um, you know, have bogged down and become kind of certainly not success stories in terms of the use of military in in foreign policy. Uh, You know, sanctions have become the tool of choice, the bipartisan tool of choice for pretty much every foreign policy crisis. And, um, you know, as we've talked about, and I think you were just talking about there, Brian, sanctions work best when they're multilateral and when you have a defined purpose. Now, here they they would have had a defined purpose. So stopping Nord Stream 2 is a defined purpose for sanctions. But I think when you're trying to stop an overseas project um, from completion, it is a limited goal, but it's one that's very hard to accomplish if you don't have the allies and particularly one of the parties to that agreement there um who's in on the who, who's really uh in on the 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 project and in fact if they're opposing the project it, it becomes almost impossible
0: also too a little too late again just the timing you know if if we're looking at sort of where we are now versus where perhaps the us could have been if they had if things had played out differently two years ago maybe or three years ago perhaps we're in a different situation uh but we again 90 plus complete you know and and i think just sort of playing the cards that we've been dealt i think that that has dictated how they want to how they want to play this out here so no i agree with you so actually that's a good segue let's let's leave nordstrom 2 behind obviously we'll keep our eyes on whether there's any blowback from from this or any further developments but uh let's pivot to one of our favorite topics i'm sure you know by the time this goes up quite frankly there could there could be uh, a change to uh, what the the latest and greatest is here but let's let's uh, let me throw it to Tim and just sort of a quick check in on the discussions regarding jcpoA 2.0
1: that's And it, the JCP, JCPOA 2.0 discussion has a lot of the themes that we've just been talking about in connection with uh, Nord Stream. That is that we have very differing views from administration to administration. So the Trump administration obviously withdrew the U.S. from the nuclear deal. Um, The Biden administration is trying to put us back in the nuclear deal. The Trump administration put up a huge number of hurdles to getting back into the nuclear deal, because they really changed the lay of the land. And in response to the Trump administration changing the lay of the land, Iran changed the lay of the land by restarting its nuclear program, since in its view it wasn't getting the benefits of the deal, so it wasn't going to live up to its end of the deal either. And so, you know, we've been talking about this now for months, after, and there are negotiations that are going on in Vienna, and the, the the latest round took place last week, and I will say that I was struck by the reports coming out from both sides, although mostly from the Europeans, um, and, and to some extent, the Iranians, uh, but then the reports from the U.S. actually were also pretty optimistic. I mean, all the way around, I think some more than others, but it sounds to me like the outline of a deal may be there at this point, and that when when the two sides return to Vienna in the next couple of weeks, that that they may be there to try and finalize a deal. We could be getting that close.
0: Yeah, and I could be. I could be, I believe they're actually back this week, if I'm not mistaken. I think um, again we're we're in the final week of May here, and a couple of dates to bear in mind: the Iranian election, June eighteenth, uh, the extension of the IAEA's monitoring agreement with iran extended till the end of june till june 24th that's a big deal that that just got announced yesterday uh there was some fear that perhaps that was going to fall through and there was going to be kind of a blind spot for some number of days or weeks with respect to monitoring that that has uh been renewed been extended so that is for anybody who's you know handicapping this i think that's a that is a positive sign that there probably that there could very well be a deal reached um and so but i do think that the way this is all being reported and again as tim said if you look at the the statements coming out of iran it sounds like they basically already have an agreement in place which nobody's willing to i think nobody on the u.s side and and on the european side is quite willing to say that yet but but it does seem like they're getting close it does seem like this could be imminent like there could be an announcement of a framework or some You know, broad bullet points of what this, what the agreement is going to look like to get the U.S. and Iran back into compliance, back into the deal, any day now. Quite frankly, Uh, and and I think this is all along we've kind of been looking at that the Iranian election as a, as kind of a a marker, a key marker, and we were expecting that if something's going to get done and sorted out, it probably would be slightly in advance of that, and that's where we are. We're basically three weeks away from that now, and so I think that any day now we could see this and you know as tim said i think all signs are pointing toward there is going to be a deal uh the us is presumably going to agree to roll back and remove many of the obstacles that they put in place over the last couple of years to drastically expand the types of sanctions and the, the, just the sheer number of designations that were imposed with respect to iran and so You know, again, just kind of a quick check in here. I don't know that we have too much more to say on it at the moment, but it is such a centrally vital and important issue in this ecosystem that I think we we can't help but kind of continue to check in on it uh, on a regular basis. Any, any sort of further or final thoughts on that, Tim, before we
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think for people who are watching, there's really three key issues as I see it. I mean, one is how is the U.S. going to essentially deal with the sanctions imposed by the Trump administration? And And that's come out in the media. It's basically going to be a test of are these Consistent with or inconsistent with kind of the underlying deal of the JCPOA, but you know that's a great test. I'm guessing that there are some sticking points and maybe they've resolved those. But you know, can they figure out what sanctions the U.S. is going to lift because it's going to have to look different than the JCPOA? And we've talked about that a lot. I mean, I I think the second point is going to be um, how do you deal with the the fact that. The JCPOA basically was not in play for about three years, meaning that um, you know the timelines that are in the JCPOA are uh, are. are in some sense, obsolete or certainly too short um, from the U.S. perspective, and so how do you deal with that? I, I think that that is going to be you know a big issue from the U.S. side. Apart from kind of which sanctions are, are is the U.S. willing to to lift as being inconsistent with the deal, and then I, I think the third thing is going to be what do we do about the Iranian um, you know changing of the status quo. From Iran's perspective, they added centrifuges, new centrifuges that were not allowed under the deal, um, but that were put in at a time when their their view, and it's not an unreasonable view, they were not in a deal. They were not in a nuclear deal. They weren't bound by the nuclear deal because the other side had breached. And so so I guess the question there is kind of what is Iran going to be willing to do with respect to the centrifuges and what can the U.S. live with? And I've seen all sorts of reports on that. But I think those are the three key issues that may have been solved last week. But I think as you watch the reporting, to me, those are the three things that I'd be looking for is kind of how much noise is there on those three issues, because I think those are what they need to resolve in order to get to a deal. I guess to add one fourth issue, the financial channels. Um, the Iranians were very dissatisfied, even under the JCPOA, with the ability to to get payment. And I think, um, you know, I haven't heard really anything about the details of how that is going to be changed. I haven't seen anything from the reporting, but but I have seen reporting that it is a big, big issue. And I, I you know, I, I believe that because I think that that from the Iranian side was probably the biggest focus of dissatisfaction before the U.S. withdrew.
0: Yeah, on that last item, obviously, we talked about we've talked about that quite a lot uh would expect that that is going to be a central issue i mean to your point it'll be interesting to see how much is truly kind of in this agreement whatever this agreement ends up looking like this preliminary agreement versus how much gets punted in terms of the sort of finer details because i think there are a lot of finer details that are going to need to be sorted out before this is all completed but uh you know the time pressure now again with the iranian elections and And some of these other elements swirling around i think is uh probably we may be in that kind of perfect storm right now where there's enough momentum and enough incentives on all sides to get to get something at least this first wave of an agreement done and and then uh we'll see where we go from there so obviously we'll be back to that uh before too long likely on the next episode but we did want to just sort of check in and touch base again on that uh so moving to Item number three, another stalwart favorite topic of ours, which is the Communist Chinese military company list, uh, and checking back in on some of the entities that have uh, challenged their listing, and in particular Xiaomi. So, uh, announcement or the public court filing just a few days ago uh, made clear two sort of two big developments with Xiaomi. Uh, number one uh the government is not going to take an appeal from the preliminary injunction that was entered in that uh case in dc federal district court which i think we predicted we did not think that was going to happen we said we said the exact same thing with respect to lukong when we talked about that last episode i, I would imagine that the same is going to be true for them when when this comes becomes ripe in a few weeks in that case so xiaomi no no appeal and uh the government has agreed to um in order vacating the designation of Xiaomi as a CCMC, and so that is now sitting with the court, and the court presumably is going to sign off on that, and then Xiaomi will come off the CCMC list. So it looks like we're headed toward total victory for Xiaomi. Uh, again, I think we expect Lukong will likely play out in the same in the same way. Now that we have kind of a now that we have sort of a path, an, an exit strategy or a, a path out of designation here in, in the wake of a, a preliminary injunction. And then the other interesting thing to note that's related is um, there was another suit that was just filed a couple of days ago, late last week by GoWin, uh, which is a semiconductor company, interestingly founded by US Persons, although headquartered in China, not actually publicly traded. So, the if you if you look at just we're gonna I'm sure we will come back to this when, uh, in this case is also going in front of Judge Contreras and in, in D.C. So uh, I think you know the betting markets would probably not give a very good odds that you're going to get different results than we saw in the first two cases, but there is one wrinkle that's a little different, which is that aspect I just mentioned. It's a it's a privately held company, not a public company. So this the the nature of the harm is somewhat different. Than what you saw in the other two cases. However, in the the underlying arguments are all the same. That the APA arguments are all the same. That there was don't mean the definition of a CCMC. There was uh, you know no substantial evidentiary basis for the finding, uh, et cetera. So it is it is literally going to be groundhog day i think for doj if they are forced to defend this and and dod doesn't decide to just um cut bait on this before they go through this again uh and so but but the aspect where it is not a publicly traded company they indicated perhaps at some point in the future they may want to have an ipo they also Hang a lot on the fact that they're just the public stigma of being identified as a CCMC has already cost them a significant amount of business, which is not surprising. We see this all the time, uh, and so I think that's the that's essentially the irreparable harm that they're pointing to in their suit. So it is a slightly different, but the underlying legal basis for the PI would be essentially identical to what we've seen in Xiaomi and Lukong. So. Anyway, that's kind of where we are again on on sort of the the weekly update on CCMC litigation. So just let me throw it to Tim for any any additional thoughts on on either Xiaomi coming off the list or GoWin's new suit.
1: Well, let's start with Xiaomi. I mean, I, I think that that is a, a a recognition from from the administration and from DOJ that the that Judge Contreras was right about the term affiliated. I mean, they they don't think they can they can. Um, beat Lukong or in in court, or Xiaomi in court, and so they've decided not to appeal and to settle, basically. And, and maybe they're looking for a better set of facts, but I I can tell you, I, I just don't think this was an issue that the, um, the SG wanted to take up to the circuit. Um, and so I think that sounds like it's over. I assume the same result will happen in, in Lukong. The irreparable harm issue here is a little bit different um, in in the GoWin case, so we'll see. Um, they certainly are going to win on the likelihood of success on the merits, and that, and they probably alleged enough to get over the bar on irreparable harm. Um, but the fact that they're not publicly traded and the executive order really creating the biggest consequence of this is the fact that they were that you know really relates to publicly traded shares. Uh, it, it, that this one could be a little bit closer, um, but but you know w- we'll see because it's sent, because I I do think that the you know the da- the damage the financial damage from being on this list is probably significant and if they got it wrong just like they got it wrong with Lu Kong and Xiaomi in terms of whether you know Go Win belongs on the list, I would think that's going to be enough to get them over the bar. So I think we'll probably be talking in in a few weeks about the preliminary injunction in the Go Win case as well
0: yeah that would be my guess but we we shall see it is it is a little bit of a different dimension to this whole discussion that we haven't really looked at before but uh one that we'll keep our eye on and and again that case was just filed so look i also would not be shocked if uh perhaps doj sits down with the folks at dod and and uh, perhaps other stakeholders in 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 the government and just says do we do we really want to go through this again, or do we want to uh, do you want to reconsider whether you want to just take them off? Um, now that may set a dangerous precedent because any company who gets put on this list may feel like, well, as long as I bring a lawsuit, they'll let me they'll let me out. But uh, at the same time given the record or the lack of a record that apparently exists for any of these listings it's it's this is an uphill battle regardless of the slightly different nature of the the harm that might be alleged so so we'll see but that's um that'll be something that we'll, we'll obviously be keeping our eyes on because this is pretty fascinating to see how this is now playing out here And the
1: yeah i mean <laughs> i think after. you know one thing that hopefully both DoD and and ofac and and Treasury will learn from all of this is that um, the 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 list is an overreach and so to the extent there are companies out there like Xiaomi, like Lukong pr- presumably like okay. go in with ca- with cases that they're not really affiliated with the Chinese military except in the sense that you know, all private companies might be affiliated with the military of their, of whatever country they sit in. Um, those those companies shouldn't have been on the list, and presumably they'll be taken off, and presumably there won't be listings like that. Now, I do think there's a limit to these lawsuits because there, there are companies that are on that list that um, likely are affiliated with the, the Chinese military in any sense, you know, meaningful sense of the term. And so those companies are, in my view, unlikely to bring suit because they're going to, you know, expose themselves potentially to discovery on this issue and or to a a much stronger administrative record on those sorts of issues that might be much more compelling and meets those definitions. So, so I think that's where the limit to these suits are, but so far we haven't reached it because we're seeing new companies each week show up with what appear to be pretty strong cases that they shouldn't have been on the list.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So we'll keep our, we'll keep our eye on that. Um, and if any any companies are out there that want to take a take a shot at this, give me and Tim a call. Yeah, um, absolutely, we're we're ready to gate. And then uh, so with that, let's go to the uh, let's go to the final topic for the main portion of the show, uh, the Hong Kong Autonomy Act report that just came out last week, and I'll throw that to Tim.
1: Yeah. So the so you know. Um, one of the laws that Congress passed last year that we're ta- we've are we talked about on the, the podcast and then a law that dates back to 1992 does require continuing reports from the Secretary of State um, about the level of autonomy that is being exercised in Hong Kong because that level of autonomy implicates a number of different um, trade and other laws that, that um, it, at least until recently, often treated Hong Kong as different from China because Hong Kong had different sorts of um, you know, democratic processes, different sorts of laws that were implied with the trade law, um, an independent judiciary, uh, some some form of democracy and democratic representation, um, and so Congress, when it's passed these laws that that. Uh, really focus on Hong Kong autonomy has required the Secretary of State to do a report to Congress periodically. And the report uh, was done, I think about a week ago from the Secretary of State updating Congress as to where Hong Kong's autonomy is currently. And I mean, the bad news is that it's it's not not good. I mean, it, it Hong Kong, the national security law that China passed in uh, June of 2020 uh, has really clamped down on the ability of Hong Kong's Legislative Council to act for they they have postponed elections uh, at least nominally because of COVID. But you know we had an election during COVID and more people came out to vote than ever before and it was a safe election and a fair and free election. And so the fact that that we could hold those elections during COVID when our outbreak was much worse last fall than was was going on in Hong Kong suggests that, that the. Explanation for for uh, suspending the elections for a year may not have really been about COVID, and that shows up in the report as well. And so the report basically, you know, all the way through talks about uh, just how much democratic institutions in Hong Kong have been limited, how bad the criminal justice, criminal legal system is in in Hong Kong in terms of arrests, bail, investigations, proceedings. Um, and and it's just it's overall just kind of a depressing report in connection with Hong Kong, um, and and the the level of autonomy. Now it doesn't really, uh, it, and it does also kind of update Congress on the the number of sanctions that have been imposed. Nothing new. We talked about it on the uh, on one of the previous podcasts about the the Biden administration coming in and imposing. I think it was thirty some um, SDN designations under the Hong Kong sanctions um, program uh, against individuals that the that OFAC and the Biden administration thought were responsible for undermining the autonomy of Hong Kong. Um, but there's been nothing new since then. Uh, and this report really just kind of summarizes the state of things. It doesn't really break any new ground. And so bottom line, it's depressing. Um, it, it, the one area that seemed not to be depressing was in, in some there's still some limited measure of uh, autonomy and and the rule of law with respect to property rights, but even there there was some hedging about how how great that was.
0: Yeah, the, I really only want to make one additional point here, which is um, foreign financial institutions. So when 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 these when this program was stood up last year, uh, when the executive order came out, and when this legislation was passed, and some of the in the wake of some of the prior legislation we i believe said on this podcast certainly to one another (laughs) in separate conversation whether or not this sanctions program makes any difference in terms of deterring uh any kind of anti-democratic or the sort of human rights related uh concerning conduct that is targeted here would all come down to the banks and foreign financial institutions as it often does with respect to OFAC sanctions programs and the report here from OFAC essentially says now for the second time since uh, last year's uh, new reporting requirement came out that there's no there have been no foreign financial institutions identified that have engaged in significant transactions with persons identified pursuant to these reports to Congress with persons that are subject to sanctions. As Tim said, there are a few dozen individuals, mostly Chinese and Hong Kong government officials who have been sanctioned uh, under the program since last year. Uh, And in some ways it's perhaps not that surprising that there's no, uh foreign financial institutions who would uh, stick their necks out to perhaps help those folks evade sanctions uh or to continue um you know perhaps uh you know un, undeterred in the way that they are able to sort of transact business or access the financial markets but i, I do think that there's some you know there's some kind of wrote recitations about, well, we looked at classified and unclassified reporting and information relating to this. We'll continue to review that. I, I have a I have a legitimate question, which is, you know, I don't know that there's, it's entirely clear sort of how um, closely Treasury or anybody in the U.S. government has been looking for those kinds of potential significant transactions. As we know, when the US government decides to put its resources in and focus on certain topics or issues, it can often uh, dredge up quite a bit. And so it could be that all foreign financial institutions in connection with Hong Kong and China who are having any dealings with these persons or they're having no dealings with these persons anymore perhaps, uh, are entirely clean. Another question is, you know, what what type of efforts have been exerted here? Uh, Will there be any increase in those efforts to try to, um, you know, sniff out any potential violators or any potential significant transactions? I don't know. I mean, this is always the the sort of significant, significant transaction, you know, threshold is, as we know from having had many, many, many discussions with clients about this over the years, is a you know, that's something that's oftentimes a purely internal sort of analysis that I'm sure banks and others that are connected that are in the FFI um, bucket are, are doing right now with respect to some of these persons who are implicated or are sanctioned under this program. And, you know, you you just, there's the the idea that there would be, I guess, a, a, a real, um, universe of information that you could mine to understand or find those things is is hard it's hard to imagine i think these are these are sort of purely internal discussions and debates and and exercises and decisions that are often taken that lead to some of these things and for something to kind of bubble up externally to actually give clues to the fact that there was something going on with a foreign financial institution with respect to any number of these individuals would be frankly, pretty surprising. I don't know how to, I don't know how you would get at that from a kind of investigative or a monitoring standpoint, but I think it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, we may be, we may be just in this, we're just kind of on this path. And this is, (laughs) I would be shocked unless there's some change in strategy that there will be, there would be some ffis that are found to have engaged in significant transactions unless somebody does something monumentally stupid that ends up being publicized all over the place uh or um you know there's a change in approach by the by the us in terms of what they're trying to um actually investigate here so i don't know just sort of a that's sort of there's the big thing that kind of occurred to me because um you know these frankly this, this program just doesn't have much in the way of teeth if if we don't if we don't have adequate focus on on that aspect of it and perhaps again perhaps deterrence is 100% uniform and nobody is engaging in these transactions at the moment i have that i have a hard time believing that that's the case but um but but i don't know we'll we'll maybe time will tell so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that before we move on. Yeah, I
1: do. I mean, I think you're exactly right, Brian, that that is the the biggest hammer in this toolbox for the Hong Kong sanctions and often for any sanctions program. But here it really is going to make the difference in, in terms of whether this this program has any meaningful effect. On that, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I seriously doubt that anybody on this list is doing business in dollars. So, so it's going to be a little bit harder for the US financial system to, to catch this when the currencies and the transactions are not at least being routed through the US. I mean, I think second, I suspect that uh, the Hong Kong financial institutions uh, view enforcement very differently than the uh, PRC financial. The institutions.
0: mainland China financial and, and,
1: institutions, and so I and and so I would suspect that a lot of the people on the list are no longer doing business in Hong Kong dollars because the Do- Hong Kong dollar is tied to the U.S. dollar. The Hong Kong financial community is kind of closer to the US and,
0: and, and certainly to the Western financial and community to the Western financial ties and otherwise yeah absolutely yeah
1: and so so I suspect that what's likely happened as a result of this is that for the the, the people who and, and entities that have been put on the list they are doing their business in- exclusively now through Chinese financial institutions in RMB or some you know non-us non Hong Kong probably non euro um uh, 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 denomination that uh, or currency that is is unlikely to be spotted in terms of a transaction so if there are significant transactions out there this report says you know they they haven't seen any but if they are out there they're likely in places that it would be very hard for the u s to find
0: right no I agree with that and it'll be interesting to just see if there's any more intel that uh, that bubbles up on this or again if we do see at some point that there's a there's a there's a red line cross there's there's some uh there's some actor or some ffi that does uh kind of get crosswise with these restrictions but for the time being um it is a null set so we will continue to keep our eyes on that and uh we just thought an interesting kind of check in again on 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 that since we haven't talked about uh hong kong in a little bit in a little while um Okay, so with that, we're wrapped up with the main portion of the program. We're flying through, given uh, our typical uh, pace, and we have just two topics to hit on in the lightning round. The first is ransomware. And uh, as I alluded to at the outset, um, the Colonial Pipeline uh, ransomware attack For anybody who's not following this outside the U.S., this has been major news. Uh, Gas prices, gas supply—certainly all uh, up and down the East Coast—massively affected by this over the last couple weeks. Uh, And it has been reported that the company uh, did, in fact, pay a ransom of over four million dollars to obtain its to obtain its data back Uh, that was uh, that was locked up by uh, this ransomware attack. Also, interestingly um part of part of the reason this kind of caught our eye for this episode too there was a report just a few days ago as well that uh cna the large insurance company also paid a ransom an even larger ransom reported to be 40 million dollars uh with with in connection with an attack that had a ransomware attack that had been uh launched earlier this year so two very sort of high profile ransom and these are by any by no stretch are these the only ones i don't want to minimize this ransomware attacks are sort of at an epidemic level at this point um, there's a new cybersecurity eo that was just uh, issued by the president last week uh, that is in part aimed at sort of getting at this issue but but that's also largely kind of government focused. these are private actors obviously and so what i really want to come back to what we want to come back to is ofax ransomware guidance from last year which we talked about at the time we actually just wrote uh we just wrote something on this just recently tim and i and our team uh and then the uh the actions that we just saw which are two companies paying substantial ransoms uh as as you know as has been reported so um you, you know it's just interesting because the the government does not take the position certainly of encouraging private parties to pay ransoms and i think the ofac guidance which was issued last october sort of doubles down on that and and the guidance from ofac if you recall for for those who haven't looked at it in a while this was not really aimed it was aimed to some degree at victim companies but it was more aimed at kind of the ransomware um payment industry, if you will, which is to say uh, financial institutions, um, money processing, you know, payment processors, insurance, cyber insurance providers, um, those in the cyber, in the crypto space, whether it be wallets or other providers in the crypto space that may be involved because uh, as reported, the colonial. Uh, payment was in Bitcoin, which uh, I've also seen some people gleefully point out. The value of the Bitcoin is probably a fraction of what it was at the time the ransom was paid, just given yeah, that ho- Bitcoin has gone down the drain. Yeah, um, hope
1: they um, unloaded but, those 75 yeah, Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, we we yeah, those Eastern European or Russian hackers who were behind the Colonial Pipeline. Hopefully, they had good financial advisors. But um, all 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 kidding aside, but um, the um, the I think the interesting question here is this this is what i want to sort of tee up just quickly for for tim to consider for us to consider which is so ovac essentially says in its guidance like look you know beware if you're involved in one of these payments if you facilitate one of these payments if you make one of these payments um then and you're dealing with a sanctioned country if you're dealing with north korea iran someone in acting in crimea some you know, someplace else, if you're dealing with an SDN, if you're dealing with a block person or, you know, and, and increasingly there are more of these malicious cyber actors that have been subject to sanctions under the cyber EO and other executive orders. Uh, and, and even if you do so unwittingly, not knowing at the time that they are, it's strict liability standard, you could be on the hook for, for sanctions penalties, potentially for, for penalties pursuant to whatever program it is that you may be violating. Now, I want to point out this, little nugget that is in the that is in the guidance and then throw it to tim because i do think that based on the public statements that are have been made by both colonial and cna this seems to be critical and i do think that this is something for sort of food for thought for anybody out there who's who's hopefully you won't have to deal with this or you haven't had to deal with this but for anybody who's sitting at a company or advising a company that may have to deal with the question of well do we pay the ransom do we not pay the ransom um let's let's be honest when it comes down to we we think we need to pay the ransom or we cannot operate and there are just too many sort of bad consequences that flow from that i think companies by and large come out on the side of let's pay the ransom and and you know take the risk But if to the extent that you are trying to assess the risk of on the sanction side of things, here's here's just a quick snippet from the OFAC guidance under OFAC's enforcement guidelines, OFAC will also consider a company's self-initiated, timely and complete report of a ransomware attack to law enforcement to be a significant mitigating factor in determining an appropriate enforcement outcome if the situation is later determined to have a sanctions nexus. OFAC will also consider a company's full and timely cooperation with law enforcement both during and after a ransomware attack to be a significant mitigating factor when evaluating a possible enforcement outcome. So just quickly, no company likes to talk about this publicly. Nobody wants to acknowledge this. Nobody wants to talk about whether they're talking to law enforcement or cooperating with law enforcement. I know this very well from having been on the other side of this and then having advised companies who also don't want to be doing this from the other side. However, if you read between the lines of the statements that are being made by these companies, they're very clear. We were in touch with OFAC. We were in touch with the FBI. We were were essentially abiding by this paragraph. We were abiding by these rules, putting it out there like, don't hammer us if, if down the road it turns out we were dealing with actors in a jurisdiction we were not allowed to be dealing with or that they turned out to have been blocked, right? And so I think that is that is fundamentally a big um, that is a big decision, is if you're going to pay the ransom, do you proceed that or do you accompany that with the outreach to OFAC, FBI, Secret Service, whom, whomever it is within the the sort of federal government um, network of cyber security, um, you know, protectors and actors and investigators, do, do you do that? And it seems here that this is, that's, partially the playbook that that was that was relied upon by these actors and i and i think again from all the discussions that i've had on this topic that is a a pretty good um you know sort of counterbalance and insurance card there's no guarantees obviously they would never the government would never say ofac would never say you get a free pass because they would not want to incentivize bad actors they would not want to incentivize Companies from just kind of willy-nilly paying ransoms without having to think about this. However, the language I just read is about as clear as it gets from the government in terms of saying if you do this, we are not going—you, we are not going to be seeing a web notice coming after these companies two years from now, three years from now. Uh, I would be willing to bet my life uh, in connection with these payments because of because of the cooperation because of the notice and because of the transparency that they've given to the government so that's that's just uh some thoughts on that but let me throw it to tim to to add to that if anything
1: well just a couple things that's been my experience is that um you know when when a company has a ransomware attack and then they cooperate with the government that the government is not going to um you know not not only is the government not going to stop them from making the payment they're gonna they're gonna understand um, and and here you know with colonial you can see that from the government's perspective the idea of having the entire East Coast pipeline shut down um, or paying a four million dollar ransom, I think the government was probably pretty happy the colonial decided to pay the ransom as well uh, it does create sanctions issues OVAC is right about that although I have to say having tried to look at them from the other end they're very tough to, to navigate because you don't the people that you're making the payment to generally are not, you know, giving you enough information to run a real, you know, a good electronic name screen. So, so, and, and they're not advertising that they are in a sanctioned jurisdiction because they're trying not to tell you where they are. So, so it's not the easiest thing in the world in terms of, Um, navigating sanctions and making these payments, I think it's basically you do what you can is mostly been my advice. You do your best, but at the end of the day, you're probably not going to get a lot of clarity and um, you're just going to have to kind of do what you need to do and then apologize later as opposed to trying to get permission because it just isn't going to happen. I mean, obviously, if you know somebody's on the SDN list or you know this is coming from a sanctioned jurisdiction, the, the analysis would be different, but usually you don't. Um, the other thing that I would say about, uh, you know, kind of going forward, it, especially in light of President Biden's new executive order, is that I could see that order making it more difficult to make these payments. And I don't know if that's an intended consequence of that order, because let's just say that, that the government feels confident enough in, in whom, whomever did the most recent attack, colonial attack and they put that company on the SDN list, and that company does another attack of similar size, now you know that you can't make the payment. I mean, a lot of these groups that are known for these attacks are not on any sort of list. If they do go on a list, then it does make it, you know, you, you you have the issue that OFAC has identified, and so you you might want to make the payment, but you can't make the payment now. Would OFAC give you a license to make the payment? Well, if they do, then what's the point in putting them on the list, the company that is doing this stuff on the list in the first place? If OFAC will give you an immediate license to to make the payment, so I, I do think in terms of the the utility of sanctions to really stop this sort of behavior, I think that it, it may not be all that useful because it just gets in the way of what companies want to do. Now you know if there's some way you could stop the attacks in the first place, that would be a lot better, but I'm not sure sanctions is the right tool for that either.
0: Yeah, just a couple of quick final thoughts. So again, I think there's there's a distinct difference between sort of re-victimizing the victims, the companies that are actually subject to these attacks, as opposed to, again, the sort of all of the ancillary parties that are involved, again, cyber insurance, payment processors, you know, sort of cyber due diligence and intelligence, Uh, firms and and the like that are involved here who may be in a better position theoretically to have knowledge as to who these actors are, where they're coming from and all those types of things. So I do think there is a distinction there. And then to the point you just made, Tim, um, yeah, these these sort of hacker uh, outfits and some of these individuals are are obviously not going to be necessarily uh, well known at the time that these things come in uh attack happens it, it may be a lag time of days or weeks before they're identified or or again it's usually a cyber kind of intelligence shop or, or cyber security firm that's going to do that whether contracted by the victim company or otherwise and and so there's always going to be a little bit of a lag there and and you're right that if you got in a position where you knew it was somebody who was subject to sanctions and you felt like you had no choice would OFAC sort of immediately grant kind of an emergency specific license I don't know um, that's an interesting question obviously that the balance between deterrence and um and uh, you know allowing victim companies in particular to be able to try to navigate what's a a, you know, just a dreadfully difficult situation is, and and a, and a a situation fraught with risk from all dimensions, not just the sanctions dimension, uh, is is a very tricky thing. So, in any event, I think we just wanted to flag that because it's a couple of very high-profile. Uh, examples that just came up recently made us kind of think back to the guidance and 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 just wanted to kind of put that out there so we'll leave that behind for now I'm sure we may come back to that sadly in the future but um, let's bring it back uh, let's wrap up with our final story which is a little uh, a little crazy and a little unexpected coming out of Belarus
1: yeah this just happened in the past few days and I think from a sanctions perspective we're gonna wait and see what what happens but 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 uh... I don't think we could ignore what happened in belarus. Um, you had a you had a dissident journalist um, who had apparently been uh, doing some very effective work, so effective that it uh, got the attention of President Lukashenko and uh, the personal attention of President Lukashenko. And so when this gentleman and his his girlfriend were on a flight, I mean, he's a young kid. I mean, he's 26 years old. He's on a flight from uh, Athens, I, I think, to Lithuania, and they were in Belarusian airspace. They were intercepted by the Belarusian uh, military, by by some fighter jets, under the, the, the pretext that there was some sort of bomb threat that has now since been been shown to be a pretext as I understand it. Um and he was uh, and, and there were also apparently Belarusian security agents on the plane, so this was uh this was definitely a pre-planned operation. Um and they escorted him off the plane and then the plane so the plane was forced to land in Minsk. Uh, the, the the dissident journalists and the presumed uh, Belarusian KGB agents, because that's what they call their secret service, escorted him off the plane, and uh, and then the plane was allowed to continue on to Lithuania. Now, as I understand it, the EU's response has been pretty uh, fast and and in some ways strong because it has immediately imposed sanctions and and there's been discussion of um, no overflights, uh, uh, essentially banning the the, uh, Belarusian national airline from flying to other EU jurisdictions. It, it, but I, I have to say, I mean, this was kind of a shocking, shocking uh, demonstration of just a complete disregard for international norms and and flight safety and, and all sorts of things in terms of what uh, Lukashenko was willing to do to defy all sorts of different countries um, in violation of international law and Sanctions are coming, and, and the U.S. already has a sanctions program with respect to Belarus. We talked about it on, I think, the last couple of shows, um, how the U.S. has been strengthening in, in light of other kind of Contra norm behavior from from that regime. But the question in my mind is, you know, apart from sanctions, what can really be done about this? And I I really do think this is an issue that sanctions are slow and and when you have kind of a determined leader at the top that is just doesn't care about the consequences like like this one appears not to. Um and we'd already been ramping up sanctions on him when he did this. You know, is this – I'll throw it back to you, Brian. I mean is this an area where sanctions is just not the right tool? I mean what – and and in my mind, there there would be the other sorts of foreign policy tools that probably would be more effective than sanctions here, although the EU's already imposed them, and I, I assume the U.S. will probably follow.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting quandary. I think, uh, obviously, recently we were talking about the general license that is is now going away with respect to the Belarusian state-owned entities. In light of exactly this type of behavior, which is cracking down on dissidents, journalists, etc., by Lukashenko and imprisoning them, this is obviously a fairly dramatic escalation of that <laughs> to, uh, to 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 uh, to pull off an operation of this. Uh, magnitude and visibility for the whole world to see. And to really double down on, <laughs> to really double down on the efforts to, uh, you know, consolidate power and to isolate and uh, imprison and uh, you know, uh, go after enemy, you know, enemies of the regime. And so, um, yeah, clearly there are going to be sanctions coming from the U.S. that are going to be targeted at at least the people directly involved here. Uh, you know, the EU sanctions so far. I don't I don't know how, um, you know, effective those are going to be. They they seem to be relatively uh, light in the grand scheme of things, whether, you know, because there is at least some kind of multilateral consensus here, perhaps if there could be uh, a meeting of the minds between U.S. and EU partners as to how they would want to go about this, what they would want to do. I mean, the, the clear goal here, as as it is in many of these programs, is to force free and fair elections uh, I think ultimately with respect to Lukashenko and his regime, uh, as a first step, obviously to get, to get the, the sort of the opposition parties, uh, released from captivity in Belarus and then to force free and fair elections, obviously it seems like we are creeping farther and farther away from that, not closer to that. So what is, what does that mean? What's the end game there? What other strategies can there be? Um, I think as tim just said unclear sort of how effective sanctions might be obviously also to the extent that um you know my understanding of sort of the belarus russian uh relationship is that is that is sort of hashtag complicated so so unclear sort of how uh this you know lukashenko and and putin uh you know would uh how much Putin or the Russians would want to come to the aid of Belarus to the extent that they're sort of, you know, sticking, uh, sticking a finger in the eye of the West here. You know, that's another kind of wild card unclear how that'll all play out. But uh, I think it's, uh, things are perhaps taking a turn for the more I don't want to say interesting in a cavalier sort of way, but uh, really unclear sort of how this proceeds from here, because this does just strike me as a fairly astonishing kind of turn of events. The the State Department, of course, was quick to note that there were U.S. citizens on this flight that were that were was taken down in Minsk. And so to the extent that, you know, U.S. uh, persons, U.S. citizens were sort of imperiled by this this action, then I think that that also kind of, uh, you know, just underscores the you know resolve in in all likelihood of the us to do something decisive here but but we'll have to see Un- unclear it's so fresh unclear what's coming but certainly something will be coming in the in the coming in the next couple days or weeks
1: well i mean this is just such a frightening um method of of kind of enforcing the deprivation of, of human rights norms i mean planes fly, fly all over the world i mean lots of planes fly over russia for example i mean if this is if if this becomes if if the world has a, an ineffectual response to this this can eat. There, there are other dictators out there who are watching, who are thinking, "Hey, I mean, I really would like to. I really would like to get a hold of dissidents who, 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 who I can't easily get at. I might start downing planes over Russia, for example, just to take one example, um, pulling people out of the planes that I don't like, and nobody can really stop me. And, and I, I, I you know, if it doesn't end here, I don't think it's going to get any better. To be quite honest.
0: Right. Yeah. It is. A, it is a dangerous slippery slope and, uh, it's some, yeah. And, and so we're gonna have to see where it does go from here, but, um, pretty, pretty frightening quite frankly, but, um, we'll, uh, we'll have to keep an eye on this, uh, you know, not, uh, in, in keeping with the trend of again, sort of more, uh, kind of anti-democratic leaders that have seem seemingly been emboldened kind of around the world to, uh, to to step up and and sort of conduct themselves without fear of reprisal. We'll see. We'll see if there's any reprisal here. So uh, whether it's sanctions or otherwise. But um, but yeah, it's something something clearly to keep an eye on. This is this has been kind of front page news, obviously, for the past few days. And, and I expect that it will continue to be for at least the foreseeable future. So. With that, uh, I think we're wrapped for today. Uh, that was, as I, as we said at the outset, a fairly tidy episode. We wanted to um, just run through those topics uh, and and perhaps set a, set ourselves up for a few uh, a few bigger issues that are likely coming. I'm sure that. Um, if we do get a jcpoa announcement and in details there we may we may very well have to dedicate an entire episode just to that if, if we do get that in the next uh few weeks so so we'll have to see but in the meantime um that's our our final episode for may uh as we said if you're in the states we hope that you are about to or have just enjoyed a uh nice memorial day weekend uh and that uh everybody out there uh of course, stay safe, stay sanctions free, and uh, we will catch everybody next time. Thanks, everyone.
1: Yeah, and uh, Trudeau would like to thank us for getting to appear as a guest on this episode. So um, you're welcome, Trudeau.
0: Tim's dog will make a will be featured as a as a as a guest in the um in the promotion of this episode. So please feel free to um give him give him a like on Twitter or uh, or to reach out and uh, and get his. Uh, get his instagram handle because it's it's a good follow so anyway all right stay sanctions free everybody stay sanctions free everyone thanks bye